Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a mimosa. What do you have? I am drinking a pineapple white claw, and on this week's episode, we're going to be looking at the Hart family murder-suicides. This case shed light on the deficiencies, corruption, and implicit racism and classism of child protective services. Before we get into the events, let's get into some background of the family. Jennifer and Sarah Hart were both raised in South Dakota. They both attended Northern State University and started dating law students. In 2005, Sarah legally changed her name to Jennifer's, and the couple were married in Connecticut in 2009. Jennifer, through her Facebook page, stated that the couple was initially closeted and were treated with hostility in their hometown. In 2004, they moved to Minnesota and both started working at the general store. In 2006, Jen left the store to be a stay-at-home mom while Sarah was promoted to store manager. Before adopting, Jen and Sarah fostered a 15-year-old girl named Lee. The first six months were good, with Lee remembering family camping trips. However, things quickly soured. When she asked the couple if she could see friends, she said, quote, it was always a no, end quote. She had homework or chores to do. Quote, if I wasn't doing anything with them, I was home, end quote. Even though the situation wasn't perfect, Lee planned to stay with the Hearts until she was 18. During this time, the Hearts were planning to adopt. Lee was excited, stating, quote, I'm going to be a big sister, end quote. She continued stating the Hearts, quote, would tell me I needed to be a good influence for these kids, end quote. The Hearts traveled to Texas, and when they returned, they shared pictures of the adoptees with Lee. One week before the children arrived from Texas, the Hearts dropped Lee off at a therapy session. During that session, the therapist told Lee that she was not returning to the Hearts and was being relocated to another family. When she arrived at the new family home, her belongings were already there. She never had any other contact with the Hearts. In September 2006, Abigail, Hannah, and Marcus from Colorado County, Texas were adopted by the Hearts. Prior to the deadly crash, there were signs of trouble within the Hart family. In early 2008, Hannah was in public school and a teacher observed bruises on Hannah's left arm. She told her teacher she had been hit by Jennifer with a belt. After this report, all of the children were pulled from school for a year. When the authorities spoke to the children, they all said that they were being deprived of food. Despite this abuse allegation, the Hearts were still allowed to adopt three more children. In June 2008, they adopted three more children from Texas, Sierra, Devante, and Jeremiah. Their fourth sibling, Dante, was not adopted by the Hearts due to behavioral issues. Sierra, Devante, and Jeremiah were originally placed with their paternal aunt. While working, the children allowed their mother into the home. That unsupervised visit violated CPS rules and that determined that the children wouldn't remain in their aunt's care. After this adoption, the problems continued. In 2010, Abigail told school authorities that she had quote-unquote owies on her stomach and back. She stated that the hearts had beat her and held her head under cold water because she had allegedly stolen a penny. When the children were interviewed, they all said that they were spanked constantly and were deprived of food. Though many believe Jen to be responsible for hitting Abigail and the other abuses committed against the children, Sarah took responsibility. She pleaded guilty to assault, 
was sentenced to community service. One year later, Hannah told the school nurse that she hadn't eaten all day. When the nurse called Jen, Jen claimed that Hannah was playing the food card and to just give her water. After this incident, all six children were taken out of public school and homeschooled by Jen. The family moved to Oregon, and in 2013, the authorities were alerted to the abuse allegation from Minnesota. They interviewed the family and family friends who gave accounts of abuse. Two family friends stated that the children were forced to raise their hands before speaking, could not wish each other a happy birthday, and could not laugh at the dinner table. There were other reports that the children were poorly fed and looked small for their ages. One family friend reported that Jennifer had ordered a pizza for the children, but each was only allowed to have a small slice. When Jennifer discovered that the pizza was gone, she punished the children by not feeding them breakfast and forcing them to lie on their bed for five hours. Friends also stated that the children acted, quote-unquote, scared to death of Jen and likened them to, quote-unquote, trained robots. During the Oregon investigation, the children didn't give their accounts of abuse. When Jennifer was interviewed, she claimed that any family issues were because others were not being tolerant to two lesbian mothers with six non-white children. In the end, investigators claimed they could not conclude whether the hearts were guilty of anything or whether there was a, quote, safety threat, end quote. In 2017, the hearts moved to Woodland, Washington. In August, Hannah jumped from the second-story window at 1.30 and ran to a neighbor's house. Hannah pleaded with the DeCobbs, quote-unquote, don't make me go back. They're racist and they abuse us. The Hearts took Hannah back to the house and the following day, Jen told the DeCobbs that Hannah was lying and the children's behavior were due to the fact that they were crack babies and that Hannah's biological mother was bipolar. The next contact the DeCobbs had with the Hart family was through Devante. He asked them for food and asked that they not tell Jen and Sarah. Devante also told them that the children were punished through food deprivation and physical abuse. The DeCobbs reported these incidents to the Washington State Department of Social and Human Services. Caseworkers attempted to contact the Hearts twice three days before the murder and the day of. On March 26, 2018, Jennifer drove herself, Sarah, and all six of the children off of a 100-foot cliff on California State Route 1 in Mendocino County, California, near Westport. The bodies of Jen, Sarah, Marcus, Hannah, Abigail, Jeremiah, and Sierra were all found in or nearby the vehicle. Unfortunately, Devante's body has never been found. A superior court judge ruled that Devante was in the vehicle at the time of the crash and a death certificate was signed on April 3rd, 2019. The authorities determined that the crash was intentional. The area where Jennifer drove off showed no signs of slowing down or braking. A coroner's jury all ruled that this was a case of murder-suicide. The California Highway Patrol stated that criminal prosecution was not possible due to the deaths of the responsible parties. Toxicology reports show that Jennifer's blood alcohol level was over the legal limit. Sarah and two of the children had Benadryl in their system. Sarah also had Google Benadryl, no-kill shelters, and the effects of drowning shortly before the crash. The Mendocino Sheriff's Department closed the case in 2019 and declassified the records. So, Jenny, what are your thoughts on this case? It's so heartbreaking and tragic and frustrating to hear about this. 
This is why people don't trust the foster care and adoption systems in this country. And sometimes it really feels like nothing is in place to protect children. I'm really glad that the kids did have a lot of adults in their life that tried to stick up for them, school officials in particular, but no one did anything. It's shocking how many friends and family came forward during the investigation. I think it was with um, Child Protective Services, CPS, and that they still couldn't conclude anything. I mean, it takes a lot, I think, for your friends and family to say like, yeah, this is weird stuff going on. It's just so sad to think about too, these children escaping to the neighbor's houses. I know that if I was the neighbor, I would probably never let them back into their house. You know, if I was the neighbor that was told, oh, they're crack babies, that's why they act that way. Like who talks about their children that way? It's so insensitive. Jen Hart was a monster and I think Sarah was too and like I said we hear this time and time again there's multiple stories about awful foster parents that end up severely harming their kids I mean I don't think they should have been allowed to have more children after the 15 year old girl Lee I mean it's one thing if you you know can't parent this child but to just bring them to the therapist's office for them to say and never be in their life again, that's traumatic and that's abusive. There's just so many red flags that were obvious and completely overlooked. When I first heard about this case, I was just struck with anger because like you said, there was so many places where help could have been given. There were so many people saying something is wrong in this house. We don't know what exactly might be going on, but we know something is amiss. And the fact that Jen and Sarah were able to basically wave off numerous investigations, I definitely feel bad that Devante's body has never been found. And so he hasn't been able to be put in his final resting place with his siblings. And this case just really shows just a grand loss of life for young people simply because they were adopted by two awful people. I know that Sarah didn't technically drive the car off the cliff, but she was definitely involved in the planning of it. And her death was ruled a suicide versus a homicide like the children's deaths were. So I definitely think that she should have all of the culpability that we're placing on Jen. I think that they worked in tandem to destroy the lives of six children who would have been much safer if they remained in Texas. It's really frustrating, too, to hear why they were taken away from their aunt. It sounds like it was no fault of the aunts. You know, kids do stuff. They're kids, you know, they want to see their mom. Maybe they were surprised and really happy to see her. I don't know. It just seems like a really strange reason, especially knowing that the hearts got to keep their kids after countless accusations, and then the aunt messes up one time, and then that's what happens. So this case really shed a light on how Child Protective Services operates differently based on the social economic background of the family. It also highlighted the deficiencies and corruptions in an agency that is supposed to protect children and find a safe and nurturing environment for them to grow up in. The recent National 
incident survey conducted by the Department of Health and Human Services found that 72% of all reports received by Child Protective Services or CPS for abuse or neglect were never investigated by the agency. Of those cases that were reported, over 1,200 children died from abuse or neglect, and 90% of those children were age five or younger. And 42% of the children who died had been previously reported to CPS as being in danger. This really connects to how allowing CPS to control the criminal investigation and the determination of when or if to remove the child from harm's way has proved to be a fatal error by law enforcement. To give you some contrast, police agencies measure their response time to the scene of an adult crime in minutes, and when they deal with child abuse cases in the first degree or when a child is being held hostage is also, again, in minutes. Whereas CPS measures acceptable response time in terms of days. A priority one or life-threatening report of child abuse means CPS is required under their own guidelines to make it to the crime scene in 24 hours. In addition to the deficiencies in child protective services, there is also a level of corruption in the system. The Adoption and the Safe Families Act set in motion first in 1974 by Walter Mondale and later in 1997 by President Bill Clinton offered cash bonuses to the states for every child they adopted out of foster care. In order to receive the quote-unquote adoption incentive bonuses, local child protective services needed more children. State Departments of Human Resources, the DHR, and affiliates are given a baseline number of expected adoptions based on population. For every child DHR and CPS can get adopted, there is a bonus of 4000 or even $6,000. According to the California Little Hoover Commission report in 2003, 30% to 70% of children in California group homes do not belong there and should not have been removed from their homes. Child Protective Services also have a history of discriminating against marginalized groups. Minority parents and people of lower socioeconomic means are more likely to have their children removed from their care by Child Protective Services. In 2018, Black children were 14% of the general population, but they were 23% of the foster care population. According to federal statistics, Black children in the child welfare system are placed in foster care at twice the rate for white children. A national study of child protective services by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services reported that, quote, minority children, and in particular African-American children, are more likely to be in foster care placement than receive in-home services, even when they have the same problems and characteristics as white children, end quote. A number of studies demonstrates that caseworkers, judges, and doctors are more suspicious of non-white parents. A recent study of Philadelphia hospital records discovered that African-American and Latino toddlers hospitalized for fractures were more than five times more likely to be evaluated for child abuse and more than three times more likely to be reported to Child Protective Services than white children with comparable injuries. Jenny, what do you think are the ways that Child Protective Services can be improved? I don't know the ins and outs of the child protective system, but 
It honestly seems like there needs to be an overhaul, and I think more funding needs to be in place with more oversight. A lot of times I don't think that there's enough funding or personnel agents for CPS are really bogged down and they don't have time to properly investigate every single case they are given. And I feel like they are most likely not paid very well either. If they were to get paid more, I think that would be helpful. But yeah, I think there needs to be more bodies and a better system of oversight. So I definitely agree that there needs to be a complete overhaul of the system. It is corrupt from its source. And I think that there has to be a better way of making sure that children are being protected and they're being placed in an environment that doesn't have any abuse or neglect. Another aspect of the Hart family murder-suicide is the concept of familial annihilation. And this describes cases in which all members of a family are killed. Between 1900 and 2000, there was 909 victims of mass murder in the United States. Of those, more than half occurred within an immediate family. Although these cases are relatively rare, they are the most common form of mass killings. David Wilson of Birmingham City University has divided these cases into four groups, anomic, disappointed, self-righteous, and paranoid. In the first type, The anomic killer sees his family purely as a status symbol. When his economic status collapses, he sees them as surplus to requirements. The disappointed killer seeks to punish the family for not living up to his ideals of family life. The self-righteous killer destroys the family to exact revenge upon the mother in an act that he blames on her. Finally, the paranoid killer kills their family, and what they imagine to be an attempt to protect them from something even worse. In addition to the Hart family, there have been several other cases of family annihilation, and we're going to look at two of them in particular. The first is Robert William Fisher. On the morning of April 10th, 2001, Mary Fisher was shot in the back of the head and her children's throats were slashed from ear to ear in the hours before their home exploded. Firefighters were immediately alerted due to a natural gas explosion and fire in a Scottsdale home. The explosion ripped through the ranch-style house in the 2000 block of North 74th Place at 8.42 a.m. The blast appeared to be centered in the living room and the subsequent fire burned the house into rubble. The initial explosion was strong enough to collapse the front brick wall and rattle the frames of neighboring houses for half a mile in all directions. Rural Metro Fire Department firefighters were on the scene within minutes and kept the 200-foot-high blaze from spreading to neighboring houses. A series of smaller secondary explosions, believed to be either rifle ammunition or paint cans going up, forced firefighters to keep their distance. One firefighter suffered minor injuries to his leg when he lost his balance and fell near the burning house. Evidence of the homicide had allegedly tried to be concealed by pulling out the gas line from the back of the home's furnace. The accumulating gas was later ignited by an ignition source, possibly the pilot light on the water heater. Burned bodies of a woman and two children were found lying in bed in the remains of the house. The victims were identified as 38-year-old Mary Fisher and her two children, 12-year-old Brittany Fisher and 10-year-old Robert Bobby William Fisher Jr. 
Investigators have considered that Robert Fisher murdered his family because he felt threatened with his wife's intent to divorce. Despite their marital difficulties, he vowed that his marriage would never dissolve. Fisher has been placed on the FBI's most wanted list and is considered a fugitive. The next case is that of John Liss. Liss killed his entire family, his wife, Helen, 45, his children, Patricia, 16, John Jr., 15, and Frederick, 13, and his 84-year-old mother, Alma. He first shot his wife in the back of the head and his mother once in the left eye while his children were at school. When Patricia and Frederick came home, they were shot in the back of the head. John Jr., the elder son, was playing in a soccer game that afternoon. Liss made himself lunch and then drove to watch John play. He brought his son home and then shot him once in the back of the head. Liss saw John twitch as if he was having a seizure and shot him again. It was later determined that Liss had shot his elder son at least 10 times. Liss then dragged his dead wife and children on sleeping bags into the ballroom of his 19-room Victorian home. He left his mother's body in her apartment in the attic and stated in a letter to his pastor that, quote, mother is in the attic. She was too heavy to move, end quote. In the letter, Liss also claimed he had prayed over the bodies before going on the run. The deaths were not discovered for a month due to the Liss's habit of keeping to themselves. Moreover, Liss had also sent notes stating that the family would be in North Carolina for several weeks to the children's school and part-time jobs and had stopped the family's milk, mail, and newspaper deliveries. The authorities approached the producers of America's Most Wanted because many fugitives had been captured due to the viewers' telephone calls. On June 1st, 1989, 11 days after his case was broadcast on AMW, Liss was arrested while living under the pseudonym Robert Bob Peter Clark, a name he adopted based on one of his college classmates who later strangely stated that he never knew of John Liss. He was identified by a friend who had seen the television feature. On April 2nd, 1990, he was convicted in a New Jersey court of five counts of first-degree murder and on May 1st was sentenced to five life terms in prison. Liss never expressed any remorse for his crimes, even during an interview with Connie Chung in 2002, and has said he believes he will go to heaven. Liss died from complications of pneumonia at the age of 82 on March 21st, 2008, while in prison custody at a Trenton, New Jersey hospital. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the tragic circumstances surrounding the Hart family. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with a brand new episode focused on the disappearance of Jimmy Hoffa. As always, stay safe.